0: Ho, 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 and welcome to Rule of Three Christmas Special, a podcast about comedy. I'm Joel Morris. I'm Jason Hazley. And as usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works, or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Uh, it's a special edition of Rule of Three because we're going to break the tradition, we're going to talk about something Christmassy. And with us to talk about it is our special guest, the writer, Neil Forsyth. Hello, Neil. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Hello, you. Neil. We got you in because what we want to talk about is the grand nation-uniting Christmas special. That is Eric and Ernie, 1977. <laughs> Neil directed Bob Servant uh, runs one of the funniest Twitter feeds on Twitter with that. Uh, also writes lots and lots of stuff for telly uh, and has also written the play about Eddie Braben, who is Eric and Ernie's writer one of the first things in any of these sort of sad clown biopic models that was actually about the Backroom Boys, which I thought was an absolutely brilliant depiction of something that was long overdue on TV. Uh, So we thought you could come and tell us it from the side of the harassed writer. Uh,
2: Yes, the emotionally bankrupt writer. (laughs) (laughs) Merry Christmas. (laughs) I think what's interesting with Eddie, and one of the many aspects of him that I think was heroic, is that he was a writer who hated writing. (laughs) Um, on a visceral level and then he got the gig writing for Markham and Wise, which was his dream gig, and so he hated it even more, because he just suddenly felt unbearable pressure You know, it it wasn't just he hated writing in general. Then he hated the pressure of of feeling that he was writing for this show that was becoming so central to the nation that he just, you know, that kind of pressure just started to expound upon him. it
1: nearly destroyed him, didn't
2: it? Yeah, a couple of times he kind of stepped away from the show. And I think you have to be sensitive and you don't want to retrospectively diagnose someone. But I think, you know, I think nervous exhaustion would probably be the fairest Mm. uh, summary of it. But yeah, twice, I mean, he, he joined them in 69. He, by and large, left after the 77 special. He went back... Some of the ITV stuff, which I don't think was the same in, on any yeah. on any level, but it was really sixty nine to seventy. But within that, yes, yeah, stepped away twice for you know I think about six months each time. Seventy two and seventy six, I believe.
0: If you're a fan of Morgan White and you're a writer who hates writing, the the urge must be to go. I wish I could step away and watch an episode of this going out that I didn't write. Yeah. Cause I imagine being really close up to it, your favourite show on television has suddenly had all the joy ball out of it because you're just watching it in a state of anxiety.
2: Yeah, I think even watching it he didn't particularly enjoy. I think it's, <laughs> you know, we got very close to the family while we were writing it and they were saying, you know, some of the Christmas shows he would struggle to be in the room really? uh, watching it go out until, you know, it's almost like a comedian until he heard those first few laughs and then he would maybe sort of edge back in. The pressure he felt, and I think, particularly in talking about the Christmas shows it, it, as the show got bigger and bigger he was a very anonymous figure to start with but then he became famous and recognisable in his own right and he would get things that started off as a novelty people in Liverpool where he lived saying who's on the Christmas show then Eddie All oh, right. once you're hearing that two or three times a day and you're already exhausted because you've been
0: up all night writing you know, these <laughs> things
2: kind of spiral and they, yeah they definitely did too It's
0: an extra layer of pressure or oh, Eric would encourage him to save up sketches from the series oh that's that's a banker for the, for the Christmas special the, the, the Christmas special was perceived as a As a qualitative step above what was expected for the the week in, week out show. So there's a feeling, even just on his day to day job, that that any great idea he had was immediately taken out and put aside for this thing where expectation was so high.
2: Yeah, I think there's probably a few cases where they felt, well, that episode's got, you know, we've got the three or four that will be talked about tomorrow. Maybe stick that one aside for Christmas. But you've got, I mean, it's the sheer volume of work he did as well. I Mm. mean, there were a lot of years they would do the series. And the Christmas special. I mean, it's sketch writing, so you're overwriting anyway. Yeah. The shows are forty-five minutes long. Really. When it was Eddie's, uh, when Eddie, yeah, there were th- thirty minutes when it was Hills and Green. Eddie took over. They immediately bumped up to forty-five minutes, and then Christmas was an hour. So there was a couple of years where they did, uh, I believe, seven episodes of the you know workaday show, and then mm. uh, and then one hour of Christmas, and Eddie did probably ninety percent of the writing. Good grief. Yeah.
0: what's well, that that credit that comes up at the end, and it just says written by, Eddie Braben. And that's something I suppose that one of the reasons that people are bothering him in the street is he's the first name on the credits at the end, isn't he? Yeah. It's, it's, it's Eric and Lenny's show at the top and the next name you see. So they're, they're sort of perceived as a threesome.
2: Yeah, yeah. And John Ammons, the producer, very much thought of them as a sort of comedy triangle. Mm. And that, that's, how, that's how he saw them operating. But he, I mean, there was other writers, we should say, people like uh, Cryer and Junkin and, and so on who would, who would contribute sketches. And Barry Crown, John Junkin, they, they stepped in in a more major way the two times that Eddie stepped out. So other people would send him material and it would work way in and obviously eric and ernie contributed but eddie was certainly doing the the, the heavy lifting and yeah i mean just the, the volume of it throwing in the fact he didn't like writing anyway
0: <laughs> i mean it's a horrific combination do you like writing i do actually yeah because i i hate it really you're <laughs> procrastinating like i'll do anything apart from apart from right I'd, I'd like to do all the preparation and all the i'd even i'll even go to a room and pitch rather than i just i'll do anything to avoid it and then once i start doing it i really enjoy it but, but you guys did a lot of sort of room writing and stuff when you were sort of coming through, yeah, did you know? Yeah, a mixture of stuff. I mean, there, at some point you've got to leave. Yeah. The, it's the dread of leaving the room when the idea was exciting and then going and sitting at a desk and going, when you come up with the idea, it's got all this potential. Yeah. And I suppose that's an element in what you're talking about with Eddie Braben. where he's writing for his two favourite comedians. It's his dream job. And every single moment from the point he sits down at the typewriter, it can only disappoint yeah, That's a terrible position to be in,
2: and you've got to keep putting it in its period's place in terms of the writing of it. Like he sat in his office with a typewriter all day. And he wouldn't come down in the evening, and, it, and his family talked about, you know, there'd be a, a Liverpool game on or something. That they knew he'd want to watch it, and he think, no, I've come down there. I'm not, I'm not in the zone, and I'm not ready to go. So he's sitting there for about fourteen hours a day, and this is pre-email and pre-mobile phones. <laughs> <laughs> so he's just sitting there at a table, you know, with a typewriter, which just as a physical act now, I think, seems such an yeah.
0: archaic, strange, and kind of torturous process. It feels like being in solitary confinement. It's yeah. something that you do like cruel and unusual treatment. It's a Guantanamo Bay of writing. Yeah. You're sort I, you're put in isolation and given a, a, a mechanical torture machine that has to uh, crush your head. <laughs> Sit there and write
2: yeah, ten, eight-minute sketches about Angela Rippon. They
1: are long as well. Oh, aren't long these sketches! Yeah. I mean, nowadays we—you're encouraged by sketch show producers now to sub nothing longer than two minutes. But yeah. These are eight-minute sketches. Yeah,
2: comfortably. Some of them longer. I mean, yeah. everything's long. And the pace within it slow. Yeah. yeah, and they just
0: wander about.
2: A it's a funny piece you know. On
0: what, the, what we're gonna concentrate on today is... is just to give us some focus to talk about sort of Eric and Ernie and the Christmas show, is the 1977 BBC Christmas show, which is called Eric and Ernie's Christmas show, I and mean, it's not Morcombe and Wise. Well, they, right, they, right. They've become yeah. so friendly now that they've got their first names in. But it's Eric and Ernie's Christmas show, 1977, which is their last one before leaving the BBC, and it's the one that is cited again and again when people write YOY articles about the decline of communal television. It's the one that the BBC claimed got 28 million viewers, which is like half the nation tuned in to watch yeah. it. And ITV then contested that, and they, apparently they're saying it's 21 Three, but it's the one when they say, "Why can't we have comedy like that that brings the whole nation together?" It's this one that absolutely busts the figures. Even though when you look at the figures, Mike Yarwood, who the was scene, on before, on the scene, got, got twenty one point four million, which means a hundred thousand people switched off Eric and <laughs> Ernie. <That> is, and <laughs> it, is a whole, I think that tells a story that the nation doesn't want to face in itself. You look, look, into our dark heart and realise that we were preferring Mike Yarwood. <laughs> but that's a show that doesn't get repeated. And Eric and Ernie, as a product, as a nostalgia project, the product that we still talk about. And hark back to us, that's the ideal double act partnership. That's what Anton Deck aspire to. That's a lot of it rests on the sheer number of people who tune in to watch this one show together.
1: Uh, what guest stars have we got on the show, Eric? I didn't actually. None! None? <laughs> None? You mean nobody no guest stars at all? Nobody will work with us anymore, and they've all tumbled. <laughs> well, there must be somebody needs the money. Well, there's only one. Who's the one fellow who'll work with us? Who? What's his name? Elephant John. Elephant <laughs> <laughs> John. No, you mean Elton John. Him. It was on the last
0: Christmas show. Oh, we don't. We don't. Sang want the this. musical song, All Sentimental and Got Laughs. No. no. <laughs> so It's 1977, Eric and Only Christmas special. It's a show, I think, I would admit, I've probably seen more in clip form than as a show. This might be the first time, maybe even since it went out, or since it was first repeated, that I've sat through the whole thing. And I think they're very interesting to watch as the whole thing, because Eric and Only for years, there was a, a few Christmases ago, watching about four separate clip shows of Eric and Ernie that were on various channels I think I watched the Andre Previn sketch four times <laughs> never got bored with it it's really good but they, it's consumed as pre-digested nostalgia but what's really interesting is to watch this and go this is a product of that light entertainment industry with these guys in it what does it actually look like and it's very different than I was expecting.
1: Again, like Neil, I thought it was very slow. I was surprised at how long it was, and I was surprised about how little of it I recognised. I mean, the sequence that probably everybody knows from this one is the newsreaders singing There Is Nothing Like A Dame from South Pacific, which is, you know, an iconic bit of TV. We got sunlight on the sand, we got moonlight on the sea, we got mangoes and bananas you can pick right off a tree, we got volleyball and ping-pong on the dandy games What we, got? we ain't got games. But it's surrounded by lots of non-iconic TV <laughs> Well, that's not a bad thing to say because if you make an iconic bit of TV, well done, you've won, definitely yeah, yes, No totally. question
2: There is absolutely
1: nothing like the phrase But things like this, like it opens with the Starsky and Hutch parody, um, which Probably for though by those standards was quite high production values. There's,
0: there's, there's cars driving through boxes. Yeah. A mini with a little stripe up the side and they've definitely got the right jumper and <laughs> nearly the right leather jacket. They
1: have, but they haven't really tried it's called Starkers and Crutch, and they haven't really tried to render Eric and Ernie as looking anything like Starsky and Hutch. They've kinda of, they've had a go and missed. And in that respect it reminded me a bit of something like what uh, Vic and Bob would do. When they do parodies yeah, yeah. of what pastiches, whatever. It doesn't look like it, but it reminds you of it, you know. We know that Lloyd Grossman doesn't have a sort of, you know, a 14-inch forehead and he doesn't float when he walks, you know, but but it dials up the thing and then skews it slightly. And I think they were doing this here, but probably with a different motivation behind it. I
0: think it's that you mustn't... You tuned in to watch Eric and Ernie and the first sketch is them dressed as two other popular characters at the time. But you have to be able to see an Eric and Ernie through it. Otherwise, there's no point to them losing themselves in character. No. It's, actually, it's interesting to watch. Whenever they do one of their plays, what I wrote, the joke is it's just Eric and Ernie mucking about no matter what wigs they've got on. What's strange watching that Starkers and Crutch sketch, which has is got, it's done on film, they're properly costumed, sort of properly made up, and it's paced like a title sequence... It's about like the Beastie Boys sabotage video. It's like a pastiche of a cop show. Yeah, opening.
1: but Eric's still got his glasses yeah. on. Yeah, <laughs> what's <laughs> great is you can see it through
0: them because they've a, realised a that, ac- they well. yeah. that accuracy isn't funny. Yeah. What you're watching is you want to see Eric and Ernie dressing up. You, it's, it's, there's a lot of this that feels like the same... It has something in common as a piece of light entertainment with Mamma Mia, I think. When you see newsreaders hoofing and you see Eric and Ernie dressing up, this has given us comic relief mm-hmm. as a comic tone, which is... What the nation enjoys is someone dressing up, being game, doing a turn. And that Starkers and Crutch sketch doesn't say very much about American cop shows or Starsky and Hutch or imports. It says something about Eric and Ernie and them being a bit low rent and low budget and it being funny watching them not be able to do it and falling over and hitting their groins. But the central joke appears to be, isn't it fun watching Eric and Ernie dress up? (laughs) It is an end-of-term
1: yes, rag exactly. stunt. Yeah, yeah, but you've hit on something, there, which is that Eric and Ernie are never in character in sketches. They're never playing the characters in the sketches. They're always just playing Eric and Ernie. Everything they do is, to one extent or another, front cloth patter, which is what the comedians used to do in front of the curtain. So it was the kind of the talking to the audience bit, not the being in character bit. And they're not in character for this. They're not playing Starsky and Hutch. They're playing Eric and Ernie dressed up.
2: Yeah, yeah. and I think what's interesting is that the, the most successful sketches are where you get more of the Eric and Ernie. You yes, know, and I yeah. think a lot of what Eddie Braben did was to make that transition from Morgan Wise to Eric and Ernie. And it was about right. he, he what he was particularly interested in was getting that off-camera relationship into the, the TV. And when you're talking about the front cloth stuff, he was trying to knock a little bit of musical out of them, I think. Really? And make them engaged with each other as individuals. Like the famous story was that he wasn't a particularly big fan when he was first asked to go and meet them. Right. Because he knew them from a much earlier incarnation. He'd seen them second from the bottom of the bill at the Liverpool
0: Empire. Also, legendarily, they they went terribly down on TV. They had that terrific review, wasn't it? it said the what's the definition of a television? The box they buried more Yes, wisely. exactly. They yeah. were not. Like, their television series Series were regarded as quite creaky and they hadn't transferred well from stage to TV which is unthinkable now you, you watch this we're saying it's a little bit slow and a bit odd to watch but my god they are amazing there's no yeah. denying mm. that you're watching that charisma come through and you don't want anything wigs, teeth anything in the way of yeah. seeing Eric and Ernie and that's what Braidman's given them is a sense of going as long as you guys stay front and centre and are you yeah, Lose the Performance was his sort of big thing. You
2: know, they'd they were they, they'd come up through Music Hall and, you know, there's there's tapes of them early in their career where they're sort of rat-a-tat, uh, Abbott and Costello transatlantic mm-hmm. accents, right. the two of them, you know. So with Eddie, there was the famous story that he wasn't a huge fan and he went to see them and they had this long conversation where they were sort of tiptoeing around whether or not he'd be interested in writing for them. And uh, later in the conversation, Eric and Ernie just started, you know, just just kind of chatting away very naturally to each other, making fun of each other, talking about great. Um, Great humiliations from earlier in their career and Eddie said, um, why don't you do this? Why isn't wow. this your act? And that was a sort of breakthrough moment for them for him, breakthrough moment for them and even when he wrote the first script that was much more character driven, much more getting into that relationship it made them feel uncomfortable and they were very hesitant about, about pursuing it because he, hmm. I, think, I don't know, I think they felt maybe they were giving too much away almost
0: Hey what? I remember the first time you ever stuck your head out of this window <laughs>
1: When was that? You. No, I yeah, don't. Oh, no, you do! Get away. It was blowing a gale. Yeah. It blew your wig off, <laughs> and it landed in that garden down there.
0: A little old lady came up and gave it a saucer of milk. <laughs> That's what you're trusting, I think, when you watch them. And I was trying to work out what I was watching because, as a comedy writer, you're regularly toiling under the shadow of. The great works that are supposed to have happened faulty Towers or whatever and this is definitely something that comes up when anyone tries to write light entertainment, it gets, turns up regularly they Go, can't we do something with an Eric and Ernie feel can't we do something with this, because it's so fondly remembered, and you look at it, I was trying to work out technically what are they doing and all it is, is being themselves even at points where they're meant to be lost in character, they're meant to be doing a play or doing a sketch, there's very few times where you can't see them and so what you're asking to do to emulate this is something that's impossible. I think it's something that Anton Deck used to manage on Saturday Morning TV. You could see them through them being in a friend's pastiche. They borrowed that very well because it was just their relationship. But I don't think it's something that you can fake. And it's something that's amazing to sort of say that Eddie Braben, who's a writer said, actually, I can't write this, weirdly. I have to write you being you, which is a very difficult thing to admit. I think
2: it's the thing that elevates a good double act when they become more than the sum of their parts. So it's the two of them as individuals, but more importantly, it's the relationship. And I think that's what Eddie did. He wrote a lot of sketches where he was creating a situation that would touch on that central relationship and let them play off it. And he also redefines the central relationship. So the play what I wrote was the big breakthrough for him I think the biggest thing he did was he almost created Ernie you know Ernie was a very traditional straight man before Eddie came along there was a lot of and then what happened and what did you say to that you know that was a lot (laughs) that was a lot of what Ernie's role was in sketches and he just hit upon this idea of the frustrated playwright and you just immediately got this window into his character so I think what Eddie did in sketches like that created this premise that he knew they could then just play off so Ernie's a frustrated playwright he's got his own hopes and dreams and then the second part of it was with Eric's relationship with Ernie Eddie's feeling was this should be more brotherly there was this idea: you can yeah. knock him, but no one else can. So Which that is,
0: God, when the Andre Previn sketches, the are perfectly Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Total faith in each
2: yeah, other. Yeah, exactly. So that's when Eric became this shield between Ernie and the audience, and he'd be <laughs> stepping forward and saying, "Now, now, you know, give him yeah. time, give him time. Bit of respect, folks. Bit I of can respect." Tease
0: him, you can't. Exactly, and that's lovely. I think the play. What I wrote set up, because this one, the seventy seven one, they've got Penelope Keith in, who just knocks it out of the park. She's, She's lovely, at this. brilliant. Isn't She's isn't so she? the big laugh out loud to me while we watching it was.
1: Well, Penelope, I must say, it's really great to have you on the show. We're really thrilled, aren't we, Eric? It really is (laughs) marvellous. Thank you very much, Kermit. You're supposed
0: to get Ernie's commit. she throws it away she swallows the line so you're not sure you how heard. are you Derek oh, I am <laughs> sorry Mr Moron <laughs> but she's got a brilliant persona for this in that she is very dignified very high status yeah. and very very popular actress but she's brilliant at playing I don't get the joke yeah. which is what she did as Margot and she's mm. doing a lot of stuff like I don't realise you're laughing at me which she plays with a straight face and obviously she's got a terrific sense of humour and knows exactly what the joke is which feeds brilliantly into the play What I Wrote which is obviously Ernie has sort of tricked great actors and actresses into being in his terrible bits of writing. But what I thought was interesting watching that again, and it's a long sketch, and this is 20 minutes of your hour is yeah. set doing Serrano de Bergerac with Penelope Keith. It's realising that saying that Ernie wrote it raises it above what it actually is, which is all variety shows would end up with the big set piece. Take It From Here would Crackerjack jack did. You do your play based on a popular film or, or thing. You do an extended sketch But that was always just an extended sketch that the writers had done. But saying it's Ernie's means that every one of those low-grade jokes has got character in it. Yeah. Someone thought that was a good line.
1: Yeah. Roxanne, I love you. Roxanne, I love you. Uh, I I love love you, Roxanne. But alas, you are only a child. On my last birthday
0: cake, there were 21 candles. Weren't there, Serrano? There wasn't my slice. I remember finding this writing myself. Whenever you want to do something done badly, because things being done badly is funny, but it's much funnier if you know which idiot made that shit thing. Mm, When you can see through to the production, those sketches which are just every joke you can throw at the French Revolutionary War or whatever get a backbone and a spine by saying Ernie wrote them. And that's a stroke of genius that no-one else had thought of doing.
1: <laughs> Madame, you're beautiful. <laughs> Just how did your nose get so long? It was where my nanny used to lift me out of the bus. <laughs> it could have been worse. <laughs>
2: Or better <laughs> you're not pastiching the original material you're to pastiching st- someone's attempt <laughs> yeah. to write the original yeah. material and that, that is much funnier
0: it allows them to do what they're always doing it's interesting watching for what are the tropes what are the tricks what is a Braben Eric and Only joke and it seems to be that there's a a sketch motoring in a certain direction and Eric is sitting on top of it, riding it, not quite in the car, waving at you, the audience, while the car's motoring on. And everyone else is keeping the sketch on. on, Of course, Angerad Reese is keeping it on. Ernie's keeping it on.
1: It's a beautiful young lady. Oh? Beautiful young lady who's been entertaining millions of viewers every Sunday night. Millions of viewers. Oh, that's a relief.
0: (laughs) And Eric is mucking about, and sort of he's, he's making you the audience laugh, but also he's trying to crack up his stars. And the key to the enjoyment appears to be watching it on the edge of collapse. Yeah. They found hysteria in there.
2: Yes, and I think they found a little bit too much hysteria. I mean, I think there is a little bit of sort of fake copsing you get from,
0: from earlier, <laughs> oh, and that's what's um, i that an arson in the Royal Docks you can get killed for now? Yeah. Fake copsing.
2: <laughs> but I think you're right. I think if you distilled most of these sketches down to the to the premise, you've got about... 30 to 45 seconds probably you know, and that, I'm not saying that's a bad thing but it, I think talking about the length of them and the timing of it is, is true it's a very paper, papery premise I think on a lot of these things and like you say it's that very deliberate knocking it off kilter throughout yeah. and then
0: frantically trying to bring it together It's the enjoyment you get watching a school play go wrong obviously you framed it beautifully in the Ernie sketches but actually all their sketches have got that quality what I was fascinated by with watching what the tone of an Eric joke is is they're kind of dad jokes Mm-hmm. They're not like the best. He's like the, the nation's nominated dad. There's no way that someone will say, "Have you got the scrolls?" without him saying, "No, it's just the way I walk." It, they are dad grade <laughs> levels of <laughs> usually a, a, a very very clean double entendre or, a, or a, a quick. It's almost like Tourette's. There's no way he won't respond when a feed line comes past. Go Come and get the tickets. <laughs> what have you got for me?
2: Uh, I've got two in the circle.
0: I hadn't noticed. <laughs>
2: I could let you have one in the stalls.
0: They all say that.
2: you two in a box. Now there's a novelty.
0: And it's delightful. But you go, well, what else is there in this sketch apart from by this stage, by 77, it's just as many feed lines as can be in the sketch as possible for Eric to... He's returning serve yeah. constantly and you're just enjoying the speed of it because he's brilliant at it. But actually, the colour of the jokes, really eggy, some of them.
2: And very transferable jokes as well. You yeah. just feel that... You almost feel sometimes Eddie just went down and dropped off a big sack of one-liners.
0: <laughs> yeah, And yeah. they sprinkled
2: them across this dozen <laughs> shaky premises they had. Do if you know if I've got Valerie
0: Leon in the sketch with a low-cut dress, we know we've got five zingers that yeah. Eric can can throw off.
1: Yeah, will but, you love me when I'm old and ugly? Of course I do. Yeah. Stuff like that. You just go, yeah. You can put that anywhere. can't yeah, you? Yeah. it's a completely portable think, bit of material. I th-
2: and I think inter- I th- I, the mechanics of putting the show together, I think, probably reflected a lot of that. Eddie was, you know, such a brilliant line writer. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: You know, the ice cream line and things like that. Yeah. It was just instant line writing. And I wonder how many premises he was supplying, you know, or how many times it was a loose framework that maybe the boys and John Ammons gave him and he's then sort of almost pulling his favourite minds into it. I think there was a bit of both, really. And I think it's no... Coincidence that some of the sketches, the very basic premise, were historical. You know, like yeah. Andre Previn, um, for example. That's you know, an old Hills and green. An old thing. Hills and green from, the, from their, their earlier show. And even in the, you know, the stripper with the breakfast. Mm. I was reading, some people say that came from a Benny Hill sketch, you know, oh. and I, I think there's probably a lot of the premises that were either historical or very transferable or pretty flimsy. And then, yeah, it's just this constant layering of, of, of lines from Eddie Do you
1: know Whedon. how he wrote? Did he just... Bank lots of one-liners and then throw them into situations. I was because st- it doesn't it doesn't feel like at any point, particularly he started with the situation in these things, does it? No.
2: Well, there's a couple of things. I was uh, in Liverpool a couple of weeks ago the, with the Brabans, The Liverpool Council had a, a big reception for him at the town hall and a local exhibition at this place called the Flory. Had done this incredible Eddie Braben exhibition, including mm. recreating his study. In wow. Yeah, <laughs> tiger print wallpaper and everything, and the, the TV sketched on the wall. And but but I was talking. To one of Eddie's sisters, and she said, Oh, he used to just call me up in the afternoon and go, All right, then. And he'd just reel off six jokes and then say at the end, What would what, you think? And she'd pick out one or two and he'd say, right, Same time
0: tomorrow. And it was wow. that it was
2: gag writing, you know. Right. So um,
0: you can see he's writing at the level of gag, and the, the, the success or failure of a sketch is very often down to how many lines. Eric can get in as the sketch is motoring along. By the time you get to 77 watching this I thought there actually aren't any sketches in this. He's lost the sort of Morny stannets, the little one-off standalones that you could sell to someone else. And all of this is in the key of Mork and Wise. And not even just Mork and Wise but Mork and Wise Christmas. So it's all dependent on celebrities. There's a lot of clever editing. It's all stunt stuff over which he sprinkled some absolutely belting one-liners.
2: Yeah. Well I think it's a couple of things. It was just that I think they knew it was the last BBC show. I think there's a little element of playing the hits, you know, like,
0: this is, I think, the third Newsreader Christmas sketch. Andrew Rippon's done There May Be Trouble Ahead. Yes,
2: that's right. And then
0: this one, she comes back and does a ridiculous faster and faster can-can sequence that makes very little sense. It's just... just (laughs) Just for the yeah, editor, that's really. It right. was well,
2: bringing back Angela Rippon. Yeah, was- and,
0: which was supposed to be a big secret. Apparently, someone was supposedly fired for leaking yeah. that Angela Rippon was in it, going, God, Angela Rippon being in an Eric and Ernie is not a big shot. Yeah,
2: it was, it was the front page of, I think, the Daily Mirror or something. Uh, really? BBC production staff had, had <laughs> leaked
0: Rippon's return, yeah. It's it's doing that, and even down to the extent of, of doing the hits, as in, at some point, Eric looks out the window of the flat and doesn't do, he won't so much ice cream doing that speed. He goes... <laughs>
1: Is that
0: an ambulance? No, we shot going on for his lunch. Oh, you've come up with a second not as good, but still a decent punchline to an ambulance going past.
2: I think the caveat I would say about, I mean, Eddie, there was certainly a lot of iconic sketches that he did think up the premise. The one that springs to mind is the thing um, which which is true, which I had in the show, which was Eddie stuck for inspiration drawing a TV screen on the wall of his office and sitting staring at it. Uh, he did do, and that was in his memoirs. And the, the the sketch that he envisaged after about an hour of staring at this blank TV in the wall was the Oggy oversized puppet coming through the curtain. Oh, that's a brilliant! Mm. And he and he says he said he envisaged that in the wall, and that's how he came up with that. So so there was certainly a fair amount of
0: kind of premises that came through as well. This is the birth of of the language of celebrities in sketch shows how you use them how you do comic relief how you do uh, do children in need that it's to do with playing with people's characters and perception of them and playing bathos with them and things so they do lots of that and you think well how? Well, if you just did a sketch that was about I don't know someone in a garden centre it would feel really small yeah. So it feels that every single one of these things is a little treat, they're, they're little presence to the nation. And the thing that really struck me, because Eric and Ernie are regarded as this nation-uniting force, and particularly this show, this one show, was that all the jokes they're making are about other nation-uniting forces. So there's a joke with Ed Reese about... Poldark, which everyone was watching. They do Starsky and Hutch, which everyone's watching. They meet the stars of Dad's Army in a steam room that everyone's watching. Penelope Keith from The Good Life that everyone's watching comes on. And And
1: Bryce and Eddington in one shot. Yeah,
0: all the jokes are about, not only we all united to watch Eric and Ernie to celebrate together at Christmas, everyone tomorrow will have watched this, but they will remind us of all the things we did together this year. And they've got within the heart of these Christmas shows is a sense of the nation all getting together and saying, what should we make jokes about? And I think you'd struggle to do that today because of atomized culture. Yes. And I think exactly. what people remember nostalgically isn't just that Eric everyone watched Eric and Ernie, but Eric and Ernie celebrated all the other stuff everyone had watched.
1: Don't hang about, love. We're waiting for Grease to come on. <laughs> it's lovely to have you on the show, Hangaradris. Thank you. Eric? Yes. Your hand. I oh, know. I've got another one here. <laughs> He's watched all of your
0: series, really.
1: I didn't know you were a fan, Eric.
0: I'll tell you something, LAUGHTER I was thrilled when I realized that you'd escaped
1: <laughs>
2: from Colditz. <laughs>
0: everyone recognise those newsreaders yeah. everyone knows Frank Balfin uh, Philip Jenkins of course no one knows anymore he's the Horst Buchholz of the uh, <laughs> of the Magnificent Seven <laughs> newsreaders Peter Woods by the way he comes out at the end and does that sepulchral there yes. uh, is nothing like a yeah. was 46 but I looked up because my brain went he must have been about 84 no he's he's 46 years old when oh, he comes man. out as the <laughs> oldest got, man or
1: <laughs> he got baggy very young didn't he yeah.
0: <laughs> bloodhound face yeah. looming out of South Pacific he's
1: Justin well, Webb's father isn't he is it? Yes. Oh fantastic. Yeah.
0: But all those things are are jokes that you only get if you're part of the British nation. If you've all been agreed we're watching Poldark, Yeah. You'll exactly. get that joke. You'll get who she is.
2: Uh, yeah, and there was a small canvas of celebrity then and it's three channels and huge viewing figures. Yeah. And yeah. I don't even know who presents the news at ten now, to be honest. Yeah. But it's no. but you know, these were these were people that were in the living room in the family. You know, the level of hysteria that's having these people kind of
0: dancing about a stage. It's quite sweet. It reminded me of um when we go to a pantomime, we go to a regional pantomime. The joy at a regional pantomime isn't the big star from Only Fools and Horses who's come down it's the postman who's playing yeah. Widow Twankey and there's a real thing that this is the national village panto that everyone's dressed up and Eric and Ernie have dressed up as American cops and the newsreaders all dressed up as sailors because you know these people they're from your village and the yeah. village was the three channels and what we'd all watched that year which is, feels I think is one of the reasons it feels so warm <laughs>
2: I think you're right that they, they did sort of invented this celebrity in, in amusing situations and then sort of ran ran with it. And I think almost as part of that, what I enjoyed watching and watching and watching so much of the material was when you could see those clear callbacks to their music hall beginnings Mm, that have somehow survived (laughs) years of, of television production, you know, and years of thinking, oh, we could just bring in, you know, the boy from The Weather and get a big laugh here. But it was often throwaway lines from Eric, just old music hall jokes. But a couple of really nice little nuggets. So One of them is the Janet Webb coming down at the end. So Janet Webb coming in at the end for the majority of the Mark & Wise shows and uh, soaking up the applause. She'd come down the <laughs> yeah. stairs out of nowhere, was never explained. <laughs> and this was uh, George Formby's wife. Right. This was them taking the piss out of the fact George Formby's wife would memorably join him for the applause at the end of the shows. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. So this know that.
0: Yeah, so that just clung on right through their sort of BBC years. Wow. This is, I mean, 77, this is pure television. A lot of the jokes that you're really enjoying this are editing jokes. There's nothing like a dame is a achievement of editing, and legendarily that Eric said it wouldn't work, and it was only when he saw the assembly together with the seamless cutting between the newsreaders and the acrobats that he went, oh, it worked. And, and cried, and cried
2: at the edit room. Did he? Yeah, yeah. Because
0: it, it's, it's a test, and the Angela Rippon callback it only works because they can speed up film. A lot of yeah. this is tributes to editing. The Elton John joke only works because of fast cutting and dropping things in. So there's a nice link between that world of music hall, music hall calibre jokes and jokes about the pit band and the swishing gold curtains and things, and an incredibly, at the time, modern use of television and celebrity and uh, references to national communal culture that were absolutely bang up to the minute and brand new. And I suppose that's why Eddie drew a picture of a television in the corner of his room to say, I've got to imagine being in the audience. I've got to imagine what a television can do. Because yeah. it's different than what you imagine when you look at a blank page, which is what can these two performers do? The,
2: the other big visual uh, development for them, and nothing but a dame part of this, was the arrival of Ernest Maxine. So when, mm. uh, when Ernest came in to produce when John Ammons left, uh, around 74, it was, I, think, I believe, he came from The Minstrel Show and he, he was a sort of, you know, it's a, a lot of comedy but also a big song and dance man. Well, mm. he's
0: credited his choreographer. In the credits before he's credited, yes, so he'd worked, he'd worked he had worked with them, yeah,
2: and then he and then he took over fully as fully as the producer, and he he pushed them in that in that big musical performance direction. That gives you the stripper. Does that give you singing in the rain? It gives you singing in the rain, yes, and and and, and, and yeah, it gives you the stripper. And what was interesting about that was part of that was the development of televisions over those years, and the, and the, oh, you know, yeah. and and they did have the, every year was exponentially better color televisions, and they, so he was yeah,
0: urging them to take advantage of that. I suppose nothing like a dame is filling. quite quite A big screen comparatively, so I imagine that's yeah. for a bigger television,
2: yes, exactly. And, can, and well, frames seven, per second, yeah,
0: yeah. You can get seven newsreaders in panoramically in a way that would have been just dots, you wouldn't be able to see their faces, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. and the interesting thing
2: about that was that Ernie was far, far more keen to to move in that area than Eric, and Eric was extremely hesitant, extremely oh, right. resistant. Ernie wanted to go to Hollywood, you know. I think one of his uh, books is called Still Heading for Hollywood or, <laughs> or something like that, and he, <laughs> you know, he was massively drawn to that. And Eric felt a little bit clumsy. And awkward, I think, in those in those situations, and and you know he was much comfortable just rooted to the spot, that kind of music hall, both facing the audience and so on. So well, that's,
0: that's interesting because one of the things, one of the very unfair things that happens is, is that because Eric is dominant in the comic partnership the feeling that it's one man with another guy next to him. But when you think about those classic Eric and Ernie sketches, you remember Eric's patter. But when you name the 10 best Eric and Ernie sketches, they're the kind of sketches that Ernie really wanted to do. They're the big ones. They're the visual ones. They're the ones that are totally television.
2: Yeah, It's funny, when you watch those early musical numbers, you can, you can see Eric's discomfort <laughs> during, during the performance. It's unvarnished. You, know, you can see, like Billy Connolly talks about, he always talks about ballet dancers. Surely at one point of every performance, a male ballet dancer thinks what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> and I think you can see that flash across Eric's face through some of these early <laughs> musical numbers.
0: Was that, um, I saw it dramatised in the, the thing with uh, Victoria Wood in it, but Ernie came from more of a sort of soft shoe shuffle background as a child yeah, I was star. him and his
2: dad. He was a child performer with his dad, and they came down to London and, and auditioned for um, one of the big kind of vaudeville acts. He got signed and his dad didn't. Oh, my oh, God. I must have been a long journey home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wow Yeah I think he was 12 And they split Split that day And he went off on his own He was, he was Britain's Mickey Rooney That's what he was known right. as He was going to be this big star So And that was always interesting The dynamic as well Because yeah It was in Victoria Wood's uh, Film of it That he He was the big star as a kid And Eric was sort of Lucky to be with him And
0: then Eric's mum Suggested they get together as a double act when they were 14, I think it was. But it's using their strengths and what I suppose you've got with, now we're not talking about just about Eddie Bradburn, what we're talking about, Ernest Maxson and John Ammons, is an understanding of the dynamic between them and what they could both bring to something. And to add Ernie's Mr. Showbiz, Mickey Rooney-isms, gives a quality to the shows that wouldn't be there if it was just Eric being smart. And yeah. It's nice to watch those two energies combine and then when you get something off it, if you're Eddie Braben, you go, oh, well, I can read something within that, that then goes into those flat sketches which are Eric and only the sitcom. That's them as Hancock, as Bob and Terry, as the likely yeah. lads. We've had a few laughs in this place. Ah, oh, we certainly have. Remember when we used to sit on the settee and talk about Terry Ashton Street School? Oh, I forget. You always said
1: that when I said Terry Ashton Street School. <laughs> was it on account of... Miss. <laughs> <laughs> huh? Nothing to do with miss. Nothing at all. You never did tell me. Why'd she keep you in?
0: <laughs> <laughs> she always kept you in after school.
1: Every <laughs> night she kept you in after school. I said, forget it! You never did tell me, and tell me, go. Love your friend. If you think I'm gonna stand around here and talk about such a little thing, you're mistaken. <laughs> I don't want to know what she said, just why she kept you in. <laughs> It would have worked
0: as a, as a, as a flat-share double act yes. because they have a different dynamic. They have different aims. They're heading in different directions. They're a double act where there are... when well, The cheap way of doing a double act is one of you wants to sing the song and the other one wants to stop you singing the song. But they're so much yeah. more complicated than well, that's, that.
1: Well, that's boom. Ooh, yata, ta, ta, ta. yeah, That's exactly what that is.
0: That's <laughs> the basic version of that. And then what they've found is a, is a much more rich and layered one where they both want to do something brilliant but very slightly different. And they're both slightly uncomfortable in the other guy's mode.
2: Yes, Which exactly. puts
0: them... At uh, in conflict it's a, it's a brilliant flat sketch in this 77 one I think sad it's, isn't it it's, it's one of the best yeah. bits of the show is where they're packing the flat down mm. and they keep doing references to leaving the flat and moving to somewhere better paid richer yeah. they're leaving the BBC and you know where Eric and Only live they live in Television Centre because you've seen it
2: yeah Do you know if... Uh, was Eddie well-paid? I think he was pretty comfortably paid, actually, because he, he'd been with Ken Dodd before, and believe it or not, him and Ken Dodd had fallen out over money. Whoa! Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> so um, he... Off the back of that, he got uh, his uh, uh, yeah an agent basically. I think for the first time in his career, and I think he was, and you uh, so I think he was well looked after. But also, he wrote a lot for other people. You know, the times where he was uh, mm. fitting well and 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 found pockets of time, he would rattle off scripts for all, you know all sorts of performers, even within the Markham and Wise years, and then worked very very steadily after. You know, his last job was writing for Anton Dick Really, okay. on CD UK? Yeah. Wow really?
0: Yeah, So he wrote for those sketches
2: Oh, m- sketch I must try and remember this correctly Someone told me a fantastic story Oh I think Rufus Jones who, who plays John Ammons in yeah. this and is a mutual pal of ours. He told me that he was chatting About Eric Ernie and me To I believe Marwenna Banks yeah. Who said she did a writer's room I think it was on CD UK And there was a sort of slightly elderly guy in the corner and chipping in jokes for the morning, she suddenly realised to her delight that this was Eddie Braben. So,
0: Amazing. Isn't that, wow. isn't that go to the well, go to the source. Yeah. the heritage of Eric and Ernie in terms of how you make these sketches and jokes, and how you make a partnership work on TV has been learned very, very well. Anton Deck, they've maintained that and they've maintained it by borrowing that dynamic, yeah. which is can you see the friendship? through the jokes and then using their writers very cleverly to never obscure who they are which I think is the genius of Eddie Braben to to do two things one to, to not obscure Eric and Ernie but also to find who Eric and Ernie were in order that when he wrote, he wrote in their key. To come and write for a double act, he'd been together for 30
2: years, and to kick off by trying to fundamentally change their relationship was <laughs> a balls-out manoeuvre, you it know? Boys, really voice, yeah. voice where you're going wrong. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and it worked, you know, and we we, have to, we should recognise that he put them in bed together. He, that was Eddie Laurel and
0: Hardy. Yeah, well, that was,
2: that's what he said. They wouldn't do it, and he said, well, it was good enough for Laurel and oh, Hardy. And, and Eric said, well, maybe if I had my pipe. So that was his...
0: Uh, is the pipe <laughs> a, a protection? It's
2: yeah, a wall. protection. <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it, somehow there is something absolutely the opposite of erotic about a pipe, isn't there? Ian, yeah. <laughs> <T-on>? I <laughs> <laughs> a belt, and I haven't done that one for years, you know. <laughs>
2: back to the flat sketch the other element of that is Eric wasn't well he obviously had his first heart attack which was short when which brought Eddie in because they lost the original writers he had his second heart attack I think within two years of, of after the 77 show but he wasn't you know he wasn't a well man and you can see that you know he, he's much paler he's much thinner yeah. and that wouldn't have been hidden from Eddie in the writing of it you know that he'd yeah. been very aware of that mm. so I think when you watch the sketch knowing that and knowing Eddie knows that I think it, it's a whole new level of pathos to as well
0: there's a beautiful film we never got of them in that mode or a beautiful six part series where they play flatmates that would have worked because they're still playing all the character tropes that you would do in a sitcom like he's a miser that's a wig that's
2: the job finished now just the one wallet in that crate
1: isn't
0: it? they're playing all the character references and the riffs to get the jokes out of it and you're going well this is the same mechanism as a sitcom and they're the few bits I want to go I could have done 20 minutes of that it would have been like bottom
2: <laughs> yeah, there was a year I think it was '74 where they they didn't do a Christmas show as such. There was um, I think they went on, both went on Parkinson and they went out on Christmas Day. And part of the reason for that I think was to give Eddie a break, but also Eric and Ernie had a period where they were very hesitant and unsure about continuing with the sketch show, and they sat in London and heard pitches for sitcoms, for oh, a vehicle really? from kind of every comedy writer in Britain and waded through them all and just didn't find anything they felt was right. And I think that's interesting. Like what, what
0: was actually holding them back? And Yeah, you're spotting by 77, they're doing greatest hits, they're doing riffs they've done before. They're leaning back on... On tricks that that have
1: served them well in the past, maybe yeah, Penelope Keith coming down the stairs is another one, isn't it? Oh, it's amazing because they she
0: says I want to do the big stair routine yeah. like Hollywood stars. You mean like Shirley Bassey? Yeah, it's, it's a double meaning. I'd like to do the big ending from a variety show, but I'd also like to wink, wink, do the big ending from a variety show like Eric and Only do it where I get to stick my my high heeled shoe into Eric's hat, which yeah. is another <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. God, the physical clowning, yeah. skirts hiked up, and you think. They did depend brilliantly on on game actresses who were prepared to play play dignity at the same time. But she gets her dream. She gets to be not only to do the big Hollywood glamour thing, but to do the big Hollywood glamour thing a la Morecambe and White. Yeah. I
1: don't think. I don't think. <laughs> right, keep smiling. Sorry. Had enough? Hmm? Yes, I have. Did I'm you? going home. Thank you very much. <laughs>
2: I didn't recognise Christmas too much in their Christmas shows, which is no, interesting. that's true. Yeah,
0: because there's no... No, there's very little bells. tinsel,
2: and, and sometimes at the end, you're know, right in the goodbye, there'd be a little element of that, but by and large, they didn't. They just, it, just cracked on.
0: Was it to get repeats?
2: Yeah, maybe so. But it's um, it would have been so easy, wouldn't it? But yeah, sometimes in the big waving at the end, there'd be a little element, but you wouldn't see much within the sketches.
0: Yeah, when they're packing the flat down,
2: you think there should be a little tree they're packing away, but no. I think it might be part of, as you were saying, the idea that a lot of this stuff is transferable from lines to sketches to yeah. everything else. It was just mm. that... It was like a factory operation up up in Eddie's bedroom and, wow. you know, we'll fit it in where we fit it in. So, yeah, I don't think they... Yeah, they didn't seem to take on Christmas. I, I think in terms of Christmas comedy uh, shows, I think the most successful TV shows that have incorporated the Christmas episodes are the one where they just bend Christmas to their will. Yeah, sort of yeah, thing you know? yeah. it's not doing a Christmas show it's uh, you know what could Christmas do for us sort of thing and do for yeah. our characters well I think one of the, one of the best would, would have been the, the Office you know the last episode mm. of The Office the yeah. you know, the specials they went out Boxing Day on the 27th very clever and they just took Christmas and put it into their show and there was no compromises made so it was you know the office show that celebrated the minutiae and bleakness of office life. The the backdrop was the bleakest office <laughs> Christmas party ever, with a yeah. couple of desks, in a sort of desultory manner, pushed to the side, and the big lad from accounts on the decks, and uh, everyone drinking shit booze out of plastic cups, and that was it. You know that that was their Christmas. And
0: that brings the nation together. <laughs> yeah. we'll celebrate that. That's that's the British Christmas. Yeah. It's best.
2: There was a couple of years where they didn't do a series. They were just so intent on getting the nailing the Christmas
1: show. And just- I don't understand how you can make a living off doing one TV programme a year. Different time. This Different time. time. Yeah. Budgets are complete. yeah. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. we've struggled making a living doing, you know, dozens of TV <laughs> programmes yeah. a year. We
0: thought about getting framed a picture for the Wall of the Office, which is of Johnny Spate with his Rolls Royce. When you could be a comedy writer with one show under your belt, doing six episodes runs, and just drive around London in a Rolls Royce.
2: Yeah, well, there's a fantastic uh, documentary about uh, Markham and Wise on. It's on YouTube. It was an omnibus, I think. It was about seventy three or seventy four. Uh, they filmed an episode of the Markham and Wise show from conception in Eddie's spare room, ah. stroke bedroom, through to show night, and it's absolutely fantastic. It's, it's on. Um, it's on YouTube. If you go, fools rush in. It's called and Markham and Wise. And it's just extraordinary. But you, but you see Eddie tapping away, and you see him go down to London. You see the rehearsal room at Elgarn Way over behind Wormwood Scrubs.
1: Yeah. But what's it was called the Acton Hilton, wasn't it? That's right. I mean, yeah, I mean. yeah. <laughs> but what's
2: but you know, in terms of a different time of, of TV writing, they turn up in their in their respective rollers. Eric with his driver, who just pulls out his paper and sits outside and uh, wander in for a bit of rehearsal. And you know, I want to weep. <laughs> I know. And he's in his blazer with brass buttons, and you know, you just wonder where he's off to for lunch after. And wow, but you've got an oyster and stuff. You've got an oyster card and stuff, haven't you? Got an an oyster loaded car. up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Right. yeah,
0: that's yeah. A it's, it's a Oyster is in credit. It's
1: <laughs> I've got twelve pounds on one oyster at the moment. That's I'm a... minted.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what. Every time I get in that train, I don't drive it myself. I have a driver. <laughs>
1: have a driver, yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> what we're looking at here, from with, with with Eddie Brakeman is someone who is part of an era where the writer was a star. That Spike Milligan, Eric Sykes, Associated London Scripts, Gordon and Simpson. They were ne- Johnny Spate in a Rolls Royce era where there were a few writers who were just massive names, colossal names. The ones you might have seen on credits growing up as a child who thought, I want to be a writer. But it didn't last very long. No. And that was a tiny isolated period where before then, writers were meant to be invisible. Before Spike and everyone started Associated London Scripts, the idea was a writer for someone like Frankie Howard, would not be credited because Frankie Halbert was supposed to have made up all his jokes and you would hand jokes in at the back door of the Palladium when some, when Ken Dobb was doing a run and he'd give you a couple of shillings for it and say run along and that would be the job of a comedy writer. They invented the idea of being credited and being a factory system that would produce jokes and I think you're looking at Eddie Braben here at the probably at the peak of that period where you where writers were stars and were seen as so essential to the voice of their front-of-camera talent.
2: Yeah, and and I think what's lovely is he'd made that journey. You know, he was a a fruit and veg stall holder on St John's Market in Liverpool, and he used to stand and write jokes in his paper bags. Wow. And he sold his first one at Charlie Chester, like you say, out the back of a theatre. So, you know, and then he went and wrote for Ken Dodd for for 10 or, 10 or 11 years and then end up but more with wife. So it was that. It, it's a fantastic story. I mean, it's a really inspirational story. He's a heroic figure.
1: Tell me tell me at least one of the paper bags survives.
2: Oh, I don't know. Well, I'm sure. I am sure. I mean, it, I tell you, on the cigarette packets, it was all scrawled in cigarette packets. Really? And his kids talked about that. His kids said he'd, they'd be uh, cleaning up the house or something. He'd be, no, 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 don't throw it. And, you know, almost wow. in a cartoonish way, everything would have a joke scrawled on it. And uh, they had to double check with them before they threw anything out. Wow. and you know, it's a it's a beautiful story, and even the fact that he always went back to Liverpool. You know, Eric called him the Whizzer because at the end of the show he'd just be off and he'd go because he had to run for his sleeper. He didn't oh, even wow. want to stay in London, so you know he'd be off and <laughs> sleeper home. Just wanted to get back to his family, and he'd wake up in his sleeper bed in the morning at Liverpool, and he'd yeah another fag packet with jokes scrawled on it, and that
1: would be <clears> the beginning of the next show's script, isn't it? It's just lovely. That probably that's why uh, he got exhausted by it as well, though, because writing lots of one-liners is a fuck of a lot of work. Yeah. Every one of those requires construction and reconstruction and finessing. And
0: also, when they don't work, at that speed, if, if you get the wrong
1: word in there, there's a line
0: that I wrote down just because I enjoyed it, which was... Ah, no,
1: this girl. She is a beautiful dancer.
0: Have you seen her Giselle?
1: Oh, no, I tried to once, but I hurt my neck. <laughs>
0: And I can't work out how that works, why that works, what Giselle is supposed to mean. None of that sort of, if you deconstruct it, makes any sense. But it's a But he's, on, in but
2: he's on to the next one by the time yeah. you're deconstructing it. But, but the the, the but,
0: rhythm's right, you know. But another, another word in there, another ballet in there wouldn't work. Yeah. There's nothing going on in there. Why am I laughing?
2: Yeah, and and can be watched if not necessarily fully understood by a family as well. <laughs> yes. And and that I and, you know and, and the ultimate family in terms of the, the Christmas stuff was, you know, they did a private performance at Windsor Castle for the royal family, Really, Ernie and, Ernie. and it was requested by the Royal Family. They went off and did a little private performance and after it the Duke of Edinburgh complained to Ernie because the Queen had moved Christmas lunch so they could watch the show. <laughs> He wasn't happy at
1: the. Uh, I love him going straight to them with a the complaint as well. I now wish she'd mentioned that in one of her Christmas speeches. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or Eric and Ernie could have put just poked their noses in the background of of oh. a Christmas message from the Queen, couldn't
2: they? Oh, I bet. The, and then the, the second part of his story with Eddie was that he. He was quite involved with the Writer's Guild for for a, for a yeah. while, the Duke of Edinburgh, and one Eddie won I think three Writer's Guild awards, and at one of them they had the winners' dinner after, and he was next to the Duke of Edinburgh, and the of Edinburgh said, "Well, what, what are you here for?" and he said, "Well, you know, I write the Mark and My Wife show," and the Duke of Edinburgh went, no, "Oh, really? I just thought they made it up as they went along." And oh. he's at the Writer's <laughs> Guild, he's, at the writer's, he's giving out the trophies that's at the Writer's
0: mean, Guild award. Yeah. Well, I suppose that's that's a tribute to uh, to a really good match of star and writer. That, yes, that it exactly. It's a compliment. It's a compliment. The image of. Uh, of the Thoreau family sitting around to watch this as that it reminds me... I'd completely forgotten this until just now. I I used to work in vanity publishing. I had a joy to edit books that people had wanted to get out that that had no sort of business getting out there. And some of them were terrible. Some of them were quite nice. Um, And I used to just go and proofread them. And I, I proofread one, which was a memoirs of a man who'd run a garden centre for all his life and had written... His life story what for
2: his the, family. What was the title? The answer lies in the
0: soil. It's called. <laughs> right. uh, and it was oddly amongst these books, really sweet. It was a, a very ordinary man's memoirs. So it's quite pooterish in a in a nice way. Uh, it had a chapter that began that reminds me of several further amusing rotovator anecdotes. So as, a, as an ever decreasing circles fan, <laughs> I have warmed this guy enormously. And then it got to a point in his life, and he said, "This Christmas, and it was Christmas, 1977, was with the finest." memories I ever had I'll tell you the story of what happened to us that Christmas and I thought oh great we've hit the point where this is going to really warm up and I went through and I deleted all the guff around the story and then realised I got to the end of the chapter and I deleted everything because all he was talking about was watching Eric and Ernie oh really and it was genuinely the highlight of his entire life story he said we sat down to watch Eric and Ernie and I went oh we'll cut that because that's obviously getting to the thing that happened and actually that was it his family had sat down and it was his happiest memory of his whole life was how nice it had been that Christmas watching this Christmas special. Yeah. They'd all laughed. They'd all been together. And this was the gift he was giving to his family. It was a memoir where the peak incident was sitting down to watch this. And I went, oh my God, I feel like the biggest prick. I've just deleted <laughs> your happiest memory. So I, I went with a red pen into the border and wrote, stepped, I uh, replaced in his memoir the best thing that ever happened, which was Eric and Ernie. And it's just, yeah. that's what the nation's relationship was them, with them, was that, them doing something like this could be your happiest memory.
2: Yeah, isn't that lovely? I mean, how much of the, and the, the impact and the permanence of the, of their work as well. It's mm. Even the people that were in it, like Andre Previn, talked about getting in taxis in the 90s in London and just waiting for the driver to call him Mr. Preview. And then, <laughs> you know, and it was, it was life defining. It's Elton John,
1: isn't it? Hey, Elton John. It? Elton
0: John I'm supposed to be doing the on my show. Oh, is
1: that finished? It's over. We're the cleaners. The whole thing's finished. Yeah, They've gone. The one with the glasses was marvellous. Yeah. I, I liked like, it. I liked the little one. Yeah. They didn't do one joke about Des O'Connor. Probably my favourite gag in this whole show is the caption that comes up in Serrano de Bergerac, this film was released through fear. <laughs> <laughs> <I got laughs> yeah.
0: that yeah. That's a classic. You're going, that is him as a writer. That is a radio gag. That's a Spike Millican yes. gag. That's a Bob Monkhouse of a gag. That's a really good, clean writer's gag. That. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so actually, I suppose that's when you're seeing him... Not writing through the mouths of Eric and Ernie. That's just when he's That's doing his true. on-screen yeah, captions and that. things, playing with format and things. Yeah. yeah, he's he's a pure. The technical writing in this is is as good as anybody. It's lovely, yeah. really clever, very witty. And him expressing himself totally, I think, and yeah. joyous to watch. His book's brilliant. really recommend his book, The Book What I Wrote. Oh, wow. It's really funny. I like
2: that. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. And, and, you know, I, I stole wholesale from that, you know, along with the, the YouTube uh, <laughs> documentary. But it's he um, it, it really draws beautiful scenes through the whole writing process and his time with the two of them. And it's laced a little bit with Pathos as well. I mean, he was so immersed in writing for them that what's... I think sort of charming and sweet and a little bit sad in the book, he talks about for years after Eric's death, still hearing Eric's voice and, and still writing jokes for Eric, you know. Wow, and, you know. really? Yeah, he does so in the book. This is in the 90s. He's still writing lines and, and thoughts that he has
0: that Eric could deliver. And so there are three people in that bed. Yeah. <laughs> <But> it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a, a sleeping partner, a, a trio. What a beautiful! a that's what I'm going to say that that is a lovely place to end just to pay tribute to... Britain's Best Double Act and the third man in Britain's Best Double Act and the work they did. And even when we're watching here, something which is probably then past their best, you can still see how brilliant they were. And what you're watching is almost the ghost of that brilliance. You're still enjoying them and what they can do together as a trio. And
1: so are they. That's the other yeah. thing. Exactly. Is that the, 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 how much they're enjoying themselves just just pours out of the screen. It yeah. really does. Very Wonderful. much so. Lovely, thank,
0: thank you. Thank you for coming in and talking about Eric and Ernie and Eddie Brainworth. Thanks, Neil. It's lovely, thanks for having thanks.
1: me. Bring me sunshine in your smile, bring me laughter all the while. In this world where we live, there should be more happiness, so much joy you can give. To each brand new bright tomorrow Make me happy through the years Never bring me any tears Let your arms be as warm as the sun from up above
2: Bring me fun, bring me sunshine, bring me love